0: Gracious God, we come before you this morning. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds, our eyes, and our ears. Help us to be attentive to the workings of your Spirit. We ask that we might be able to see the application and relevance of this ancient story in our lives today. And we ask all these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we can really even tackle what the author Paul says in Romans 12. We have to back up a little bit and give, and explain some of the context in which he's coming from. We have to back up way before even the time of Genesis, we have to back up all the way to the dawn of humankind. In the ancient world, human beings, they didn't understand nature. This is pre-scientific. They didn't understand why there was this ball of fire that moved across the sky during the day. They didn't understand why, once that ball of fire disappeared, this ball of light would appear in the night sky and what all those pinpoints of light were. They didn't know what it was. They didn't understand why it would rain and some and you know, crops would grow. Or sometimes it would not rain and crops wouldn't grow. They didn't understand why sometimes when they would go out to hunt, they would be able to find an animal quickly. And sometimes they would go out to hunt for days And they would be able to find nothing. They didn't understand why some were able to live long lives, while others were not able to live long lives. It was a mystery to them. And so, these ancient human beings, they believed, perhaps behind these forces, there were deities, persons, gods, that controlled the forces of nature. Now, when these gods were happy with you, then nature was favorable to life. And when these gods were angry with you, then nature was against you. For instance, when the god of rain liked you or was happy with you, then it would rain just the right amount so that your crops would grow. Because too much rain will flood everything out. Too little rain means that everyone is going to starve. And so how do you ensure that you have a good relationship with these powerful forces, these gods, the same way we probably do with human beings. So when things are good, you want to show your thanks and appreciation, like on Valentine's Day, you want to say, I love you, here's some flowers, here's some chocolate and candy. When times are bad, when you know that you really screwed up and you're on your way to the doghouse, then you're going to start vacuuming and doing the dishes before your spouse or partner comes home. Maybe that's just me, right? But we, in times of goodness, we show our thanks and appreciation. And in times of tension, we show our contrition and we ask for forgiveness. Now, the ancient people, the way that they did this, with the gods was to build these stone platforms, altars, and on top of these altars, they would offer grain, they would offer cattle, they would offer livestock. It was a way of saying thank you for providing for us, here is a portion of what we have given back to you. Now the problem with this system is that when times are good, you get that bumper crop, Uh, I'm not not from an agricultural background, but I think that means, like, your your harvest is humongous. You want to show thanks, so you give more than usual, because you don't want the gods gods to think that you're taking all this abundance for granted. They say, here's a little bit more, as my way of saying, thank you. But then when times are bad, when there's no rain, there's a drought, there's famine, there's disease, there's death, Perhaps the gods are angry with you because you did not give enough. And so you still have to give more. What about next year? Well, you can't give the same amount that you gave last year because then it would tell the gods, well, you know what, thanks for last year. Uh, I'm just going to give you the same. So the following year, you have to give a little bit more than what you gave the year before. The altar, it became this vortex you could never really give enough. No matter how much you gave, you never really knew whether the gods were happy with you or not. It was totally transactional. The only way that you can find assurance that the gods would be pleased with you was to just keep giving, 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 giving. Now you might be thinking, oh, wow, how primitive. How stupid those ancient people were. Oh my gosh, like, transactional relationship? Like, I have to give something so that I can receive something? Like, I have to give something so that I can find assurance and acceptance and love? Gosh, how primitive is that? We don't have altars today. Or do we? A young woman once told me that when she was in middle school, or I think elementary school, she first started going to church. And she was the only member of her nuclear family that went to church. And after attending church for a little bit, it soon dawned upon her that based on what she was learning at church, that she was the only one that was saved and that the rest of her family was doomed to go to hell. And so, unconsciously, subconsciously, she felt like she had to be extra good. I mean, get extra good grades, be behave really well, can't cause trouble. Because in some way, if she was extra good, then perhaps God would spare the rest of her family. See, there is no altar today, but there is an altar today. I knew a young man, he was in college, and he'd been dating this girl, he absolutely loved and adored her. And uh, in the Christian tradition that they came out of, you didn't just date to date, you had to date for marriage, or what they call it courtship. And so they would pray together. They would read the Bible together, they would read devotional books together, they'd go to church together. They tried to do everything to ensure that their relationship was a godly one, so that their relationship would continue and that they would get married, have two and a half kids, and have a house with white presents. The unfortunate problem is, is that they were about 19 years old. And I don't know about you, but not too many relationships at 19 will make it into marriage. I actually know some high school sweethearts that have gotten married and everything is great. It's definitely the exception, not the norm. Well, this young man, one day he comes and tells me that him and his girlfriend, that they broke up. And that he had been going to early morning prayer every single day. Now in the Korean American church that I came from, there is early morning prayer. is seven days a week. The church is open. I think they open at like 5:30 a.m. or 6, 6 a.m. And so this guy he went to church every single morning ever since the breakup, and he would pray, pray, pray. And I thought, man, prayer is great. Why are you going seven days a week? You're crazy. And he says to me, perhaps I did something wrong. And God is not pleased with our relationship. Perhaps if I keep praying, perhaps if I, you know, repent, then God will restore this relationship again. You see, there's no altar today, right? But there is an altar today. I, after this young man told me this story, it kind of boggled my mind. I said, man, God loves you. You're okay. Don't worry about it. No, for real. You don't need to do anything. God loves you. And I was looking into his eyes, and his eyes started to well up. I could tell that he wanted the truth of that to, it resonated with him, If he wanted to accept it, but then he just shook his head. He said, It's nope. not the way it works. transactional relationships, transactional religion. It's not just a story about ancient people, it's a story about us as well. Now, over the course of century and millennia, this practice of giving gifts on the altar would become systematized and regulated. It wouldn't just be every single person, every single person like, Offering things on their altar in their backyard. It would be appointed to specific professionals at specific times and specific locations. It would be regulated by rules and laws and regulations. Welcome to the birth of modern religion. Now, centuries later, in the first century, there was a rabbi named Jesus, and he came on the scene and he challenged. This system, this transactional system where you constantly have to give, give, give to know that your relationship with God was right. Because here's the thing, what if you can't afford to sacrifice a goat or a sheep or something? What if you can't afford it? Then if you can't afford to offer something at the altar, then you can't make right amends with God. Or what if you had some kind of physical disability? And you couldn't physically make it to the temple to present your offering. Well, if you can't present an offering at the altar, then your relationship with God is not right. Or what if you have some kind of infectious disease and you're just barred from entering the temple? Then you can't have a good relationship with God. What if you break laws Then you're ritually impure and then you can't make amends with God? You can see the problem with the system that only those who would present the right offerings and the right sacrifices can have a good relationship with God. And so you look at the life of Jesus, and he certainly spent time with religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law. But if you look at the Gospels, the majority of Jesus' ministry, I would say something like 70 to 80% of his time was spent with people who are outside of the religious system. The people with leprosy, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the drunkards, the lame, the sick, the blind, the people who are not Jewish, the people who are a religious. Those were the people that Jesus spent time with. And he preached a radical and powerful message to those people that he encountered. He said, It may look like you are outside of the system of God, that you can't find favor with God, but Jesus said something. Very famously, he said, the kingdom of God is here. It's not only with those people who have everything right. The kingdom of God is here. And when people pressed him further, they said, oh, the kingdom of God is here, it's near? Well, when is it going to happen? Where is it going to be? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is actually inside of me. What was Jesus saying to these people who are totally marginalized? You don't need to do something to find favor with God. The favor of God is already with you. It's a powerful, powerful, bold message of inclusion. Now, if you are outside of the religious system, that's good news to you. too good to be true, actually. But if you are a part of the religious system, you're a part of those who are in the temple system, this guy Jesus running around spreading God's love to anyone and everyone, that's, he's, he's, at, he's a troublemaker. You don't like people like that. And so to put the cherry on the top of the sundae, Jesus one day he enters into the temple. And he sees all these people like selling sheep and goat and doves to people who wanted to make a sacrifice at the temple, and they were totally ripping the people off. So if like a goat would cost forty five dollars, they're charging them like eighty five dollars. And so Jesus, he was incensed, he was angry. So he makes a whip of cords and he drives these uh, these uh, merchants out of the market. He flips over tables, and Jesus says, "Destroy this temple." And in three days, it will rise again. Now, clearly, Jesus is making social commentary about the temple system. But in John chapter 2, it says that he was actually making a statement about himself. Because what Jesus was doing was not only challenging the social system, he was going to demonstrate a new way to worship. We all know the story. Jesus is arrested. He's tortured. He's beaten. And he's thrown up on a cross. He's crucified. and he, He's killed. And what seemed like it was the end of his story, three days later, the story says that he rose again. Now, this was just the intro to my sermon. This is a long intro. We're just getting started here. Actually, I'm kidding. We're almost at the end. I saw some worried look on people's faces. We're ready for Romans 12 now. This guy, Paul, the author of Romans, he knew about Jesus' story. He knew about this rabbi that was killed and crucified. And one day, Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was going to go arrest some of Jesus' followers and make sure that they couldn't cause any trouble. And he has an encounter with the resurrected, the risen Jesus Christ. And the story goes that Paul, he completely has a 180 uh, transformation. This is where Paul is coming from. He recognized. That Jesus was creating a new way of worship. No longer did God require you to follow the rules and regulations and to endlessly put things on the altar to find favor with God. Jesus gave his life himself as an offering to God. Not just things, not just time, not just energy, not just money, not bulls, goats, and not just grain offerings. Jesus Would stand in solidarity with the things of God, and he would give his life and his entirety as a sacrifice to God. But when you give your life in its entirety as a sacrifice to God, that's not the end of the story. Jesus was resurrected. And so, born out of Jesus' story, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, I urge you, my brothers and sisters. To offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, which is the true and proper worship to God. See, what Paul is saying is this He's saying God doesn't just want your time, your money, God doesn't want a piece of your life, God doesn't want to just fix one or two things that you're struggling with in your life, God actually wants your life in its entirety. And like Trey talked about for the past couple weeks, it's not for the computer nerds like me. It's not just a patch fix. God wants to download an entire operating system that's going to change change the way that you think, you act, and you love, and you operate. Because I think when God is at work within your life, it has to be transformational. And you already know what this kind of transformation looks like. I'll share just a couple stories uh, from my own life that I've heard. Uh, At one of the churches that I was working at, there was a woman, and a woman I worked with, and at staff meeting one day, she said, guys, this is a landmark day today. She said, on this day, in 1987, so at that point, it's like maybe 27 years, said on this day, 1987, I had my last drink of alcohol. I have been clean and sober for 27 years. She went on to share with us how she tried everything to battle her addiction to alcohol. And finally, she found herself in AA and at AA. They talked about surrendering yourself to a higher power. And because she was Christian, she said, that higher power to me was Jesus Christ. And she said, I tried everything to fix myself. I tried everything. And then finally I said, Lord Jesus, I can't do it by myself. I need you. I completely surrender to you. She gave not just a piece of her life, her time, or her money, she gave everything over to God. And that allowed her to experience radical transformation. If that's not salvation, then I don't know what but it requires that you give everything. Several years ago, when I was a youth pastor, one of my students, he came up to give a testimony in front of the whole youth group. And this guy, I mean, if there's such a thing as a rock star in youth group, it was this guy. He was a (laughs) worship leader, he was a musician, he's fun, he's dynamic, he's outgoing, just a great role model. And he walks up to the microphone and everyone expected something funny and dynamic and encouraging and empowering. He walks up to the microphone. He stands there like in silence for three seconds. And he says, a lot of you don't know this, but two or three years ago, I was in such a dark place in my life that every single day I thought about killing myself. My parents were always the way I were. I just moved to the U.S. I couldn't speak the language. Everyone made fun of me at school. And I just wanted to die. I was in a dark, dark place in my life. And he said the pain inside was so great that he began to cut himself. Just as a way of, I, I can't even begin to understand the type of pain that he was going through. He said, one day I I started going to church, and he he hated church, he thought it was boring. Uh, He didn't engage at all, but one of the church leaders just really mentored him and integrated him into the youth ministry. And he shared about how it was the first time in his life where he had really given himself into a church community and that he felt loved, He felt like he belonged and that he had a new lease on life. And as his youth pastor, I knew nothing of what went on. And I knew him this whole time. I was absolutely floored. And he closed his testimony by looking around in the youth group in front of all these kids and he said, You guys don't understand said, you saved my life. And I think he meant that not only figuratively, but he meant that literally. Salvation, when you go from a place of darkness into a place of light, but how do you experience that? It doesn't happen by by giving to the altar in bits and pieces of your life, and your time, your money, and your resources. It happens, like Paul says, when you're willing to put your life in its entirety the good, the bad, the ugly, the junk, the secrets, all the things that only you know about. And you say, God, just take all of me because I need you to transform my life. Not just bits and pieces, but everything. Earlier this week, I had a one-on-one with our liturgist this morning, Phil. And Phil was just sharing, he was just dropping knowledge and wisdom with me. And he was telling me about Richard Rohr and Henry Nowen and he talked about this uh, these dual identities, this movement from the false self to the true self. The false self is this identity that we have where we work hard, we burn the candle from both ends so that we can promote our self-image, so that people will love us, so that we'll achieve, so that we'll be successful. The false self is defensive whenever you hear criticism. The false self always tries to put your best foot forward. The false self is like the highlight reel on Instagram or Facebook, where you only put like the best pictures of yourself doing the coolest things ever. It's not real, right? Don't get jealous when you see people posting awesome things on Facebook. That's like 1% of their life, right? That's the false self. The false self is always transactional. If I do this, then they should love me. If I do this, then I should move myself forward. That's the false self. And we want to move to the true self. What is the true self? The true self is the one that says, you know what? I've got baggage, I've got good, I've got bad, I've got ugliness, I've got things I need to work on, but guess what? I am absolutely loved by God just the way that I am. People who experience the true self, they're not defensive, they're not argumentative, they're not angry, they're not tense, they're not filled with anxiety. People who are living in their true self are really comfortable in their skin, and they make those people around them feel comfortable in their skin as well. You know those people that I'm talking about, right? They're not perfect by any means, but they're living in a new type of reality. And salvation is the process where we go from our false self into our new self, and it requires that we place our life in its entirety on the altar, and we say, "God, take everything, change me, and transform me." That is the way of Jesus. He gave his life in his entirety, and he was changed and transformed three days later into something. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, give your life as a living sacrifice. And here's a beautiful thing. In our Christian tradition, we don't actually come to an altar. We come to something else. It's called the table of Jesus Christ. And at the table of Jesus Christ, all are welcome. And at the table of Jesus Christ, we're invited in our brokenness to identify with the brokenness of Christ. And when we partake those elements, what we're doing is we're saying, you know what? There is death within me, and I will identify with the death of Christ. But here's the thing Paul says in one of his letters, he says, When you are united in death with Christ, you are also united with him in his resurrection the only way to new life is when we give ourselves fully before God. And I encourage each and every one of you to think about that today as you think about what what part of my life have I not surrendered over to God. And how can I do that today? Just pray with me. Lord, we come before you this morning all over the place, all over the map, some of us are living great lives, and things are just great, and we keep thanks. And some of us are living in dark places, whether we share that darkness with our friends and family members, or whether it is a secret pain that we hold within inside of us. Or wherever we are, each and every one of us, we want to experience. The power of your salvation again and again and again. We want to move from our false self into our true self. We ask this morning that the power of your Holy Spirit would fill this place, flood this place, and enter into our hearts. Give us the courage and the conviction to open ourselves bare before you. Give us the courage, the encouragement, so that we might be able to say, Lord... Take all of me. I offer myself as a living sacrifice to be changed and transformed to be made more in your image today. And so, God, each and every one of our lives, we, we give it to your hands. We pray all of these things. In Son Jesus' name. Amen. So, right now we are moving into our time of offering and communion. And let me be real clear, the offering bucket, the offering plate, you don't, you don't put money or you don't like volunteer for things because, oh, if I do this then God is going to bless me. It, it doesn't work like that. Each and every one of you has experienced salvation and transformation and in some shape or another. And it's out of the gratitude of your heart and you say, God, it's a beautiful thing. There's so much joy in my life that I feel like I need to give something back to you so that other people can experience the same undeniable joy and change and transformation that I've experienced. That's why we give God. So Trey, it's going to come on up and lead us in.